Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I serve as one of the elders here at Life Community Church, and then I also serve in the youth ministry. Um, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, just that, our youth ministry with our children's ministry, and then also with our youth ministry here at the church. And uh, I have the opportunity, and now with my son Brody, um, we lead worship back there really poorly uh, once a month. Um, it's pretty bad. But uh, we go back there and we give it our best and do what we can to uh, lead the kids in music. And uh, that's really what it is. Over the past couple weeks, maybe you've heard people different sharing about their involvement in youth ministry. And, uh, and that's what it just is, a willingness to serve. So if something in you over the last couple weeks has maybe uh, spurred something into either serve with the kids on Sunday mornings or maybe midweek with uh, high school, middle school kids, uh, please do. Uh, right outside, the say yes to the next generation is right outside here. Grab a card, get some more information, talk to CJ, talk to Brandon, talk to anybody else here in the church, and uh, we'd love to have you. Um, but with that, I'd ask you to open your Bibles and uh, go to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. And these are verses uh, 4 through 10. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you at the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, I will go if you, or if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. This is the word of the Lord. When I was thinking of how to inter introduce the message today, I was like, man, all these different analogies. And the one that just stood out was every time, yeah, every time you put batteries in a microphone, you expect them to work. And you're, and you're just always disappointed and it feels awkward and there's that tension and you're like, man, I really feel bad for those guys. That's awkward. I'd be embarrassed. I'd be blushed right up there. Or maybe you're like, I just would never go up on stage. So that would never happen to me. When you walk outside, similarly, you're disappointed when you see the beautiful sunrise and you think it's going to be warm and you're shocked when it's freezing cold and you're like, what? It's supposed to be a nice sunny day. Why is it so cold? And yet the sun's out shining. Somehow, somewhere along the way, there's this idea where we can follow God but be nothing like God. We could follow Jesus but look nothing like Jesus. Somehow, there became this idea where you could be a Christian, but not a disciple. They're, they're two exclusive things. Somehow, somewhere it was, we could, we could be an apprentice of Jesus, but look nothing, act nothing, and think nothing like Jesus. And I don't know where that happened, except when we go back to Judges, we see 
God say to his people, God save his people, and then again, his people decide to serve other gods, and they worship other gods, and they worship themselves, and then another nation comes and and judges them, in a sense, and then they're serving this other nation, and then they eventually get tired of it. In this case, it's been 20 years where Israel has been oppressed, and their life is threatened from the north and the south, with Jabin ruling in the north, and Caesar on the south, and his army just oppressing Israel in the middle. And finally, they cry out to God with that supplication, saying, God, save us. You'll be our God again, and we'll be your people again. It'll be great. Just come. And then God says, okay, I'll save you. And he appoints, in this instance, he appoints Deborah, not only to be a prophet, but a judge. And we'll get into the the uniqueness of that in ruling the nation. It's no surprise that Israel needed a hero. It's no surprise that you need a hero. Because every time you go to a date night and it comes out, what movie are we going to watch? It's like, well, there's Avengers, there's Marvel, there's some rom-com. But there's always kind of a hero, right? Hopefully the guy gets the girl. Sometimes, let's be honest, guys, you get into that a little bit. You're like, yeah, come on, underdog. But most of the time, you're like, I want the movie where there's a hero. I want to see the hero win the day. And here, it's clear. There's a huge need for a hero because they're being oppressed and their life is on the line. We see Shamgar had saved Israel by repelling a band of Philistines that threatened to disturb the peace that Ehud had won previously. And now they're sinning and and worshiping other gods. And for discipline to someone who didn't just threaten their well-being, but was destroying their lives for 20 years, verses 2 and 3. And we see this impression, this title, Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, was really a, a very aggressive enemy. And he was constantly pressing in on Israel. And it was a title, Jabin at Hazor was a title much like Pharaoh, ruler over the Canaanites. And like his predecessor, Jabin's strength lay largely in the network of alliances he had. He had formed with other rulers and Canaanite cities in the area, and his general, Sisera, who had 900 chariots of iron at his command. I don't know about you guys, but visually picturing 900 iron chariots lining up, and then there's you with your rainbow sandals, maybe a shield or a spear, and you're like, sweet, this, this looks like a good, at least there's 10,000 of us, but there's 900 iron chariots with horses, and I could just relatively see the comparison between foot soldiers and tanks. You're like, there's no hope. Like, they are way faster, more agile, and guaranteed they probably have some swords off the wheels, because I would if I was in a chariot. And, and then maybe Frank behind me has a, a bow and arrow, and it's like, cool, Frank, maybe you'll get one and get lucky. But there's nine, you know, 899 other guys that are coming at me. And so it kind of puts into perspective a little bit for, for Jabin truly being the enemy, Sisera's force and military power, and Israel crying out to the Lord, we're helpless. We're just on our feet. Few of us maybe have a sword. We're defenseless. These guys on chariots come in. We need a hero. We need someone strong enough, mighty enough to overtake 900 chariots. And so then we see verse 4 through 10, the commissioning of a champion. So Deborah, the prophet, the ruler, invites Brock in for maybe coffee or lunch and says, hey, I had a 
I was doing my devotions this morning, and, and God told me to tell you to get your guys and go out, and he's going to get them, and he's going to deliver victory to you. He's going to deliver them in your hands. And, and Barak offers, at first glance, you're like, he says no, but really he, he doesn't say no or yes. He just says, well, you need to come with me. And if you think about the office of, of Deborah, she's a prophet, she's a ruler, and she's a mom. So at first glance, I'm like, well, she's a, you just asked some guy's mom to go with you to battle. Like, that's a little interesting, Brock. Like, you're the warrior, you're the mighty man, and you're like, hey, I want to ask my friend's mom to come to battle with me. But then you go down the, the titles and you go, well, she's the ruler of Israel. Yeah, I'd want the ruler of Israel, God's people, to be in battle with me. And then even more so, the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, the one who speaks for God. Who wouldn't want that person in battle? All through their history, it's like Joshua, Moses, they met with God. They said, hey, Israel, here's what God said. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go fight these guys. We're going to win this battle. So thinking about it, you're like, maybe Barak wasn't fully off his rocker. Maybe it wasn't just the comfort of some guy's mom in battle. Maybe it was the other offices she occupied as leader, judge, as prophet, saying, we got to go. But we see the reality is Brock didn't have his faith fully in God. He was putting his faith in Deborah. And so she said, all right, we'll go. I'll go to battle with you. But the glory is going to be sold to another woman. And it is a patriarchal, just kind of manly to, to the extreme of, of abusive towards women and, and very self-absorbed. That was a blow to, to, to his pride for sure. And he's we see through this chapter and even looking into chapter 5 a little bit, his character truly come out. So we see his faith is challenged. As Deborah doesn't just say, here's the strategy. Deborah gives him a divine promise, which is amazing. She tells Barak that when he did what God had commanded him to do, gather, literally draw his men to Mount Tabor. In verse 6, the Lord, the Lord would draw, the same word, Sisera and his forces to meet him at the river Kishon and give them into Barak's hand in verse 7. In other words, the meeting at the particular place would be choreographed by God and would issue a divinely given success to Barak. And he's told nothing about the how of this victory or why the river Kishon is the place where it will happen. The face of it, he's probably thinking, you know, we had the Red Sea, God parted it, we walked through, the waves came crashing, took out Pharaoh's army. I, I can kind of see that. But strategically, we're going to a, a, a creek, a, a shallow plain, shallow creek and, and a plain, a very um, flat area. Kind of gives the advantage to the chariots. I'm just saying, right? Brock's like, I don't know. You got all these chariots, mighty warriors. And, and what, in summary, the promise was given to him, go there and God will give you victory. That was in summary. And he said, okay, I want you to come with me. Clearly putting a little bit more faith and concern into in, in Deborah rather than in, in God and not relying fully on him. Rather, we see he'll be given victory rather than achieve it. It will be given to him as a gift. And the real battle will be won before he goes to face Sisera and his decision to stake everything on God, being faithful to his promise. The second part we see in, in our third point is that victory and embarrassment are to come. So first, Israel needs a hero. 
verses one through three. Second, the commissioning of a champion saying, hey, Brock, go do this. And he's like, mm, Deborah, why don't you come with me? And then we see how the victory unfolds and the ultimate embarrassment where Deborah tells him, yeah, you, you're going to go and you'll have the victory still, but the glory will be given. We see in verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So we see this focus shift from Barak to these 10,000 men. Barak is the leader who hears the promise and not, not the same response where he said, I want you to come with, but he said, okay, today's the day. I'm going to go up. I'm going to do this fully putting my faith in God. And then these 10,000 soldiers, they, they came to work. They punched the clock and they're there. And they heard that Deborah told Barak, and Barak's like, all right, soldiers, we're going to go down, and, and God's going to give us victory. And so they were putting their faith in God, too. They didn't run the other way. They said, okay, we're going for it, even though there's 900 chariots versus 10,000 of us on our feet. And it shifts the focus from the story, from the victory at the river of Kishon, which we expected to be the climax to the fate of Sisera, which is the fulfillment of Deborah, Deborah's prediction that he wouldn't that he would be given into the hand of a woman in verse 9 and it sets the stage for the entrance of someone we haven't heard of until this point jael the wife of heber the kenite in verse 17 as with deborah we will reserve most of what we're going to say about jael until there's some hints in, in judges 5 however some background to her sudden appearance is needed she is a husband of Heber, who broke away from the Kenites, who had settled in the south of the tribe of Judah, and so they had aligned themselves away from Israel and with the Canaanites. So they aligned themselves against Israel. And so as she's seeing things go down the way they're going, she decides to take matters into her own hands and says, hey, my husband's made a bad move and go against God's people. I'm going to go for God's people. And so as the... in We'll see later on that God opened the heavens and created a, a torrential downpour which softened the soil of that, that shallow creek enough to create a muddy mess so the chariot's wheels slid and slipped and stuck. And so then the chariot guys were like, we're done. These are God's people. We know how this story goes. We've heard the story about the Red Sea and these other Jericho and they just walked around and the walls caved in. We're out. And so they ran away. They gave chase. Barak led them, killing everyone, and realized Sisera was not there. So he's like, man, where did he go? Well, Sisera jumped off his chariot, and, re and he knew. He knew Jael's husband. There's an allegiance there. He knew that it was right around the corner, and so he hopped over there, and he comes in exhausted, and he comes to her, and it says in verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazar, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, and she's like, oh my goodness, you must be exhausted. I saw that storm come out of nowhere. Where's your, your army's gone? Oh my goodness, come on in, come on in. And I just, I just got back from backpacking, so I can imagine, um, you know, sleep is huge when you're backpacking. And so I got this four-inch air mattress, and it, it holds air like nobody's business. You pump it up with like four little rolls of this like air pouch and boom, 
poof, you're in this like massive that rivals like my bed at home. Like it's a big deal. Um, and so I, it's, it's awesome. It's super comfortable. And, and I'm sure she's like, hey, I, come on in. I got this bed laid out for you. I got some down sheets, some down comforters, like a thousand or 10,000 thread Egyptian cotton sheets for you. Like I got it in from the traders came through and it's all set up nice and I know you said water, but I got some warm milk for you. You must be exhausted. Let me give you a little neck massage. And she sets this guy up, and he's like, all right, this is amazing. Before I go to sleep, though, just make sure no guys come in the tent. Like, they're looking for me. If someone asks if a man's here, say there's no man here. And she's like, I got it. I got it. So then she puts him to sleep, and then she looks around and grabs a tent peg, puts it to his temple, and drives it through his head and kills him. And some of you guys that, you know, you're married, you're like, yeah, that's not a surprise. Like, she, she knew what she needed to do, and she took care of business. Like, I learned that lesson when I was about five or six years old. Like, you get that look from a mom or, you know, your girlfriend or your wife, and you're like, yeah, that, she, when it comes down to it, like, she can handle stuff, okay? And, and I, don't, I don't question that. And so as I read this, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, JL's like, dude, my husband's an idiot. He made a bad move. I'm not going to get hurt because of his stupidity. I'm not going to get, I'm going to the winning side. Okay. I know how this plays out. They didn't have the rest of the story, but they knew that you don't mess with God. They knew. And so she said, look, here's the enemy of God's people and I'm going to take care of business. And it's amazing because Deborah told Barack, yeah, you're going to go to battle and you're going to, God's going to give you the victory, but the glory of taking out the mighty Sisera, well, that's going to be given to a woman. Again, the backdrop of about men and men's power and men's role and leadership had been thwarted, had been surrendered, had been given up. And once again, here's God saying, hey, guy, you're the warrior. Go fight. And he's like, uh, I could probably go with a woman instead of this is my job. And she's asking me, she's a mom, she's the leader of Israel, and she's a prophet. And now Barack's like, yeah, and I need you to come fight this battle with me. She's like, really? I got to do everything? Which, how many of you moms, like, kids are pulling at you all the time, and you're, I can just imagine me coming home, which I learned my lesson, but, you know, you're like, hey, could you come out and help me change the oil in my, my, my truck? I want to do this with you together. And she's like, uh, I have all this stuff I'm doing, and you want me to do that, like, for you, with you? Like, what? You, that's your role. That's your job. We all have roles and jobs. And here, God's like, yeah, and she can do it. I'm sovereign. I'll get the job done. And I'll elevate women because that's what God always does. He's helping us understand just because Adam was created first and then Eve to be a helper doesn't mean they're lesser, doesn't mean they're, they're less equipped to do what needs to be done. And so the glory still goes to God, and he used jail to accomplish it. So then Barak comes in exhausted, tired to the tent and jail goes out and meets him. He's like, Hey, come over here, Brock. Is this who you're looking for? And the humiliation of Brock looking at the guy he was chasing after wanting to get the glory to say, look, I killed him. And he realizes Deborah, the prophet was exactly hundred percent accurate that the glory of killing the enemy would be given to a woman. And as we see, the victory, but also the embarrassment, that he stepped aside from his role and his responsibility, as Israel did. And so God said, well, if no guy is going to step up, I'm going to get 
this woman to be not only a prophet, but the leader and is, gonna, and is gonna be the spokesperson and lead and judge and rule over this nation and bring them back to me. We see the story ends by reminding us how it began and points to the mighty reversal that's taken place where Jabin, the king of Canaan, as we see, he was the one who was oppressing Israel. Not Sisera, it was Sisera's power and his army that enforced it, but it was Jabin, the king of Canaan, that we see in verse 23, on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So there was victory. The true enemy was Jabin, and they had to go through Sisera and remove that force to kill the true oppressor. And so why in the world is Barak's name listed as, why isn't Deborah? What about Jeb? What? Why does Brock get his name in Hebrews, chapter 11? As we see in Judges 5, we, we see Brock's additional character come out when he was on the mountain and, and, and Deborah said, today's the day. He said, okay, let's go. And we see Samuel's farewell address to Israel in 1 Samuel 12, 11. And he says, and the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And the final comment on Barak comes, as we see in Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Which brings us back to the question, to the statement at the beginning of the message, we need a hero. Who's going to be the hero? Was Barak the superhero of the day? Looking back, no, not necessarily. He was a small piece, but in Judges 4, it tends to downplay his status. He equivocated he refused to go with nothing but a promise of God. By insisting that Deborah go with him, he forfeited the glory that could have been his. And he arrived too late at Jael's tent and found that Jael had already done what he should have done and had the honor of doing. But God sold Sisera into the hand of a woman. And we see in reference of 1 Samuel and Hebrews that highlight three important areas. First, the Lord sent Barak and used him to deliver Israel. Even though he was a little unsure and uneasy, he still was sent by God and accomplished his task. He might not be in the elite category where maybe we could say, well, Moses, Joshua, David, certainly maybe was a little more intent on following God at first. But second, we see that he did win a major battle and he did eventually align and put his faith and focus his faith fully on God and realize, okay, maybe I did look a little too much to Deborah. Maybe I needed to look to God. Maybe my soul needed to, to form as I focused my faith on, on God. And God was the one who delivered the victory. And third, and most importantly, he did it all through faith. Hebrews 11.33, Barak's faith was a cautious, qualified one at first, but when the command came to go a second time, he didn't hesitate. Down from Tabar he went, 
with his men following. That's true manly leadership. He led first. He came under, he came alongside a woman, which we'll, we'll unpack that in a minute. There's some, some tension there. And that's why Barak deserves to be honorably mentioned in Hebrews 11. Barak was certainly a hero, but a hero with a difference. He was not a professional soldier or mighty warrior in the traditional sense. He did not prevail by raw strength or prowess in battle. His victory was a gift. It was literally like, hey, just get guys and walk, and God's going to rout, and the storm's going to come, take him out, freak him out, and then you just got to fillet him. It's like what I did when I was backpacking. I caught like 30 fish. This one lure just hits the water. Fisher just like, take me out and eat me. I'm like, okay, well, I want you to be big enough, you know? And, and then you just, they're dead. You just flay them. That's what they're doing. They're just chasing them, cutting these guys down. They, they, weren't, they weren't super hero soldiers. They were just guys walking. And it was by faith. And it's so easy for us to look at these and go, okay, that's what we should be doing. We should just go fight battles. But this isn't to say we're the warriors. This is for us to realize we're, we're protected by God the warrior. That God is the warrior, that, that good leaders and great and are, are, are very indispensable in the life of, of God's people and his nation and willing to volunteer to support them. But God is the warrior. We see in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 5, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. God came like a mighty warrior marching into battle. Israel had seen him do this plenty of times before. When they were fleeing out of Egypt and God destroyed Pharaoh's chariots as they rode into the Red Sea and he just crashed the waters over them. Exodus 15, 3-6 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The Lord is a man of war. How do you feel about that description of God? Christians of a, a former generation had no embarrassment at all. One of the most popular sung hymns on Sunday was Onward Christian Soldier, Marching as to War. I went on to speak of Christ, the royal master, going before us and of the church of God moving like a mighty army. I remember as a kid, after I ate my fishy crackers, singing, I may never march in the infantry, fly, ride in the cavalry, fly over the enemy. And I'm like, dude, am I going to, like, am I going to Europe? Is there another like Normandy beach we got to storm? Like, I thought we we're supposed to learn about Jesus being like, a good shepherd. Like, where's the like living water story? And, 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 much of the liberal thought has been, let's just talk about how loving, lovey-dovey, soft God is. And then you come to the Old Testament, it's like, yeah, let's not read that. It's hard. It's rough. It's raw. It's gory. And then you read a woman drives a tent peg through a dude's head. And it's like, man, that tent peg was not like my little aluminum tent peg I took backpacking. Like, that thing must have been massive and had a, like a little sledgehammer. There's no like light titanium framing. Here. Like, that would have just Boom, done, blood everywhere, you know? A mess. And she's like, yeah, we're going to take care of this enemy. Like, how does that work? Because God is a God of war. We're not ignorant to the fact that we live in a different world from the Old Testament people of God. 
And the church of Jesus Christ shouldn't try and defend ourselves or advance our cause through acts of war, like the history with the Crusades, times of the past. In the days of violent jihadists and religious pluralism, we've largely given up using military language for God. But talk of God as our Heavenly Father is still acceptable, especially on the extreme left-wing side of Christianity. There's just so much on the Good Shepherd. And then you go from, well, you know, if we're talking about God being uh, the God who welcomes the, the prodigal son home, the older brother shouldn't be left out of the party either. So eventually he feels bad enough and he comes in. And you're like, I don't, did you write that in your Bible? Because it's not in mine. Like, where did we get that from? But we get so hung up on the love of God, we forget the wrath of God has to punish sin. And that he fights our battles. And if he's the healer, then he's going to go before and do the healing. And we don't need to all get so wrapped up in our action in the healing, in our action of the fighting. But we, like God calls us to do, we be still and know he's God. We can be still and know that he's going to fight our battles. And it was 20 long years because they sinned. And then God came and fought their battle and won and delivered them for 40 years of peace. If we are to have the victory, God must win it for us and give it to us. And the good news of the gospel is that the most critical battle has already been won. The most important battle was fought by the most important person who faced sin and temptation and yet never gave in and compromised. And he fought the battle for us. And so we can be made new and receive that gift of salvation. Colossians 2.13 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And that's how it was for Deborah and Barak. The enemy was too strong. They had no hope against Sisera and his number of 900 iron chariots, unless God went before them, fought them, and delivered them into their hands. And that's what they sing about in Judges 5 and add all the details. And we see that the toughest thing for us is to take this and go, okay, there's two tensions I see. One, when people claim to hear from God, right? Deborah's like, hey, Brock, I heard from God. You should do this. It's like, whoa, time out. I didn't hear that. <laughs> God's telling you stuff now about me? Like, I didn't. How does that? But it wasn't that Brock needed to go do this thing. It was Brock needed to put his faith in God and obey and walk in that obedience. And God was going to deliver the victory. And God was going to do the work through him. And that's the difference. The second thing is, as we see here, so often we can look at this and say, okay, this is what has to continue to be. God has to fight our battles. God has to do this. But really it was him taking the nation through a bunch of mavericks, which I'll define the term in a minute, and saying it's about your soul forming faith as you focus on God. So it's about our soul. That last part in your outline, it's so much of the story, and as I wrestled with it, I'm like, dude, did this guy really just ask some guy's mom to go with him to war? Like, did he say no? No, it was about Barack's soul realizing it's not about me fighting, winning, or losing. It's about me surrendering to God and letting him fight my battles. It's about my soul having been formed in this, this faith as I focus on God, that my soul is really what needs to grow and be strengthened by my faith focused on God. And we see the only way that's going to happen is if you do these three things. You're probably going to need to write this down. As I found out, typing on an iPad, I couldn't remember things. 
And I looked it up, and scientifically, if you write it out with a pencil and paper, like that actually scientifically allows you to remember things more. And I was like, I'm way too young to be forgetting things like this. This is crazy. So write it down, vision, intention, and method. So the vision is a humble servant committed to following Christ. If we're going to say, okay, it's about our soul, and the vision is our soul forming, focused on God, if our vision is to be a humble servant committed to following Christ, then is our intention going to be our soul formation? Is it going to be this transformation to look like Christ, think like Christ, act like Christ? There's a big word we use called sanctification. All that means is just you look like Christ, act like Christ, and think like Christ. Unfortunately, the church decided in some of these big different languages, try to create big words to be like, I know a big word and you don't. And I always was like, that doesn't make you, that just makes you a jerk. Like I don't, we can all just say the same thing and understand it. And if we're understanding it together, then we can grow together. So there's the vision, humble servant committed to following Christ, the intention, am I really going to look like Christ? Am I going to talk like Christ? Am I going to love like Christ? What's the method to accomplish that? Are you in the word every day? Are you saying, God, my body, my mind, my heart, it's yours. I'm surrendering it to you to use for your good pleasure. Or like Paul says in Romans 6, 13, he, he really unpacks that vision, intention, and method. He says, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't use your body and your mind and your heart to sin, but present them to God and say, hey, I'm here. What do you want to do with me? Instead of Brock saying, ah, do you want to come with me? He could have said, okay, that's what God wants to do with me. I'm going to go and do it. Whatever it is, I'm doing it. Because my soul is being formed by my faith focused on God. And if your faith is always focused on God, then you're not going to be concerned with other people's titles and other people's gifting and other people's roles. You're going to say, God told me to get a card and pray over it or sign up to serve in kids ministry. I'm not concerned that someone else is, is, is going to clean or build or or pray, or sing, or preach. I'm concerned with what God's called me to do. And I'm going to let my soul be formed as I fix my faith on him. And so we see the unique thing is, is the exceptional, the very exceptional part, as we conclude, is, is Deborah's role here. She exercises this public leadership in the book of Judges, and one of the few to do so in the Bible as a whole. This is what we would expect if you pay careful attention to the whole of Scripture, it opens with Adam being created first, and then Eve as his companion and helper. Genesis 2 and 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, when the woman sins, it's her husband who's called to give an account because he's the leader in the relationship. He's the one who bears ultimate responsibility, Genesis 3, 9 through 12. From that point on, all those who exercise leadership are men, Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, no, nor has there been a female prophet before Deborah. Abraham is the first person to be called a prophet in Genesis 20, then Moses, Deuteronomy 34, and the expectation for the future is that God would raise up more male prophets like Moses to succeed him. When God said in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And there's a couple, like Miriam, the sister of Aaron, the prophetess in Exodus 15. There's a handful of other prophetesses that, that, that raise up. And, and, and in, in Miriam's case, she led the women in a song, Praise to God. 
And so all through Scripture, we have these women exercising different forms of leadership and different forms of, of prophetic utterance or singing to God. And, and then we see Deborah. Deborah shows up as the exception, not the rule. And Deborah stands alone because she's judging and prophesying. So she's not just the exception here, prophesying, or the exception here. She's like very, very exceptional. And she shows up and is prophesying and judging and leading in a time where there weren't men. And so what are we to do with this tension? Because in the New Testament, Paul's like, hey, women can't be a pastor. But they can, form, they can serve in other roles. And there's a tension there to, to manage but not figure out. Because when we're in Costa Rica doing missions work, all of a sudden there's this small little frail old lady called Pastor Ingracia was her name, and she went around to five different churches because there was no men. And it was like, my theological paradigm, I read in this verse that women can't be a pastor. And then I realized, hey, there's another woman who her husband was a pastor, and she left, and he left her, and so she's there caring for the church. Exceptional, very exceptional circumstance that's not the norm, but is God going to say, yeah, sorry, biblically, like Paul said, let's close the church down. No. Unfortunately, so much of our evangelical mindset grabs onto these paradigms and say, this is the rule of the law. Instead of saying, well, if God's in control, and God, like Paul said in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, pray for all men to be saved. I don't want anyone to perish. If there's a village where there's a woman who knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and wants to teach people about Jesus, she should do it and pray as those, both of those women were like, I pray that faithful men will rise up, that men's souls would be formed and their faith would focus on God and they could be the leader as Adam was for Eve. And as, as Paul says, look, it's the man's role to lead. But if there's no male leadership, then like Deborah, women rise up every time. And it's a beautiful picture to see God say, my church is always going to grow. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But we need faithful men to rise up. And every church I've been in that has a true focus where their faith is on God, the women of the church in the early days prayed for faithful men. And I didn't know that. This church I was at recently, I was like stirred in my spirit. Like, I want to know the story. Something huge happened here. And it was like, brought me to tears as I was like sitting among these elders. There's like 12 elders, these men, all deeply committed to the Lord, and huge men in the church, like leading men's ministry, bike rides, all these outreaches, caring for the orphans, widows, and the oppressed. And I'm like, where did this start? Because this didn't happen overnight. And they're like, four women prayed. The church started with four women who prayed for faithful men to step up. And it was a beautiful picture to go, God never abandons his people. And if men aren't going to be faithful, he'll find a faithful woman to stand in the gap. And it's so powerful because Deborah was that. She was the exception. And she was a maverick. In this church, as I thought about this message, I'm like, we're full of mavericks. As I see some of your faces, and I haven't got to know you deeply yet, but I'm like, dude, we're, we're an odd bunch. Like, we come from all walks of life, and none of us really want to do the, the norm, right? We all kind of have the gray areas, maybe, of our lives where we're like, yeah, it's not fully in line with what society or, or church or people or theologically we'd want to be, but we want to be in the gray and we want to follow Jesus there. Because when he showed up on the scene, the Pharisees were like, what are you doing? Your boys, come get them. They're eating on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I can do what I want. I gave it to you for rest. 
We're hungry. We need nourishment. And he was a maverick. Where do we get this word maverick from? Interestingly, this, this uh, guy, Samuel August Maverick, is where we get the name Maverick from, not Top Gun, contrary to popular belief. Uh, Samuel Maverick was a Texas lawyer, politician, land baron, signer of the Texas Declaration of Independence, so pretty rad dude. His name was a source of the term Maverick because he annoyed his ranchers, his ranch buddies, the neighboring ranchers. He annoyed them to no end because he would not brand his cattle. He's like, I got bigger stuff to do. I got my land baron. I'm doing all this stuff. My cattle will be unbranded. You guys can spend all that time dealing with all that craziness, but you'll know my cattle because they're not branded. They're a maverick. So as we see in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, the term maverick is an independent individual who does not go along with a group or party. I think JL was a maverick. Husband, you're an idiot. You're going to go against the God of the Hebrews, the Israel, I'm going to take this guy out. Deborah was a maverick. I know every guy has been leading, but I'm a prophet and I'm going to lead. This is what God's called me to do. And in this time, in this place, this is what I'm doing. It's a maverick. Mavericks are irritating people, and they may be considered either outsiders or insiders, depending on the level of annoyance, right? Maybe you have a maverick. I think we have one. She's our youngest. She's beautiful, passionate, stubborn, but they're always the ones that when someone's hurt, they care the most and they run the quickest to help. And mavericks are needed in the church to rub things, shake things up a little bit, make sure we don't get too complacent, make sure we don't get too comfortable because one day, often this is the day, this is the season, God's saying, hey, this is the church who's gonna be full of mavericks to bring the gospel to the hopeless, to bring the hope to the help was to find the hurting people that maybe it was people in a, in a form, formed religious white temple church that hurt you. And God's saying, no, I'm bigger than that. Maybe it was someone hurt you and they said they did it in the name of God. And you're like, why did God tell you to do something that hurt me? Maybe, as we see here, all these Judges, Ehud, left-handed assassin, Shamgar, probably a Canaanite, not even an Israelite. Deborah was a woman. Barak was reluctant. Jael was from a Canaanite splinter group. Gideon was fearful. Jephthah was an outcast and a gang leader. Samson was a womanizer. Maybe it's where you're starting from. You're like, I'm disqualified. I can't be used. I just kind of want God to love me a little bit, but God's saying my love for you is supposed to go through you to others. The, the purpose that I've loved you is so that you would give hope to those who don't know that they can be loved as much as I've loved you, as much as I've healed you and grown you. You're supposed to be the church that's going out and figuring out ways to reach people who haven't been reached because you're going to do something that hasn't been done yet. And that's what I get so pumped about this as I was wrestling with it. I'm like, it's more than just a story. It's about us realizing God cares for your soul and wants to form it by your faith being focused on him. And, and taking those rough edges, and he's like, I know. I'm going to use that to reach people that only you can reach. And so there's a warning here about absolutizing our Christian culture, including theological systems, and saying, God, if you're sovereign, you're going to use not only a woman leader, but, but a warrior just to kind of step on the battlefield so other guys will follow. And then you're going to use this random woman who's actually an enemy to say, yeah, forget you guys, I'm going with the Lord. Like Rahab, a prostitute who hid the spies. You're like, what? God, if you're in control of all things, why would you choose her? He's like, exactly. 
I don't want anyone to perish. I want everyone to know me and know my love. And it's exceptional circumstances that need exceptional situations. And God reserves to himself the freedom to act in ways that are outside of the norm and confound our expectations. I just love when Paul says he used the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He uses the things, especially in a religious system, that say, oh, you can't, you shouldn't. It's like, I know, but I'm going to use them to do this thing because it's about me and my glory and it's for your good. And it can be hard for evangelicals because we're committed to being faithful to what the Bible teaches. But it's important we, we take all of Scripture and we understand the heart of God instead of just saying, well, this is for a guy or this is for a girl, and say, okay, what does God say about a husband and a wife? What does he say about a man and a woman and how they're both in his image and they both have characteristics that are used by him for his glory and our good? And there's a warning here against confusing godliness with respectability. Deborah may have been respectable on some senses, but she broke the cultural norms. Being a female prophet and ruler, Jael certainly was not respectable. It's like, I'm not going over to your, your house, your tent, Johnny. Why not? Dude, your mom slammed a tent peg through that guy's head. What happens when we got too loud and rambunctious? What's she going to do to me then? The more respectable the church becomes, the less real, the less salty. Jesus said we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. When we talk, when we touch, and we're around people, the world should reject us and say, oh, you're too loving, you're too kind, you're too good. How can you do those things? But when we're too far away from the world, they'll never see us, they'll never taste us, they'll never touch us. The less authentic we'll be. That's why, as I said in the beginning, if we put batteries in a, in a mic pack, it should power up. When the Holy Spirit's in us, we should be different. We should think different and give way more grace, way more often to way more people. And Jesus was not respectable in Luke 7, nor were his disciples. The end of a church is a church with no mavericks because it started with Peter who cut off a guy's ear and Paul who was trying to kill Christians. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on that guy who's just trying to figure it out and on that guy who's trying to kill everyone who's trying to figure it out. And God's like, perfect, this is my church. The guy who's trying to end it is going to be the one who's starting it all over town and sending letters in the hands of women so they can slip around the Roman guards and read them to the church. Are we a church full of mavericks who are going to be against the world and for Jesus? And is our soul going to be forming our faith as it's focused on God? Because it's not about Deborah, Jael, but it's about our souls and our faith being formed as we focus on God, that our soul would continue to be formed like Jesus as our faith is focused on God. So the three things we're going to take away today is the vision of a humble servant committed to following Jesus. The intention, I must decide to live like Jesus, think like Jesus, and act like Jesus. Jesus said, you're a fool if you think you can do life without me and win. You'll lose every time. He said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So think about this vision. We're in wine country. The, the vine's there. The branches are connected to it. Whoever abides in me, I in them. You're, you're one. The branch can't live off the vine. And the vine can't produce fruit, fruit unless there's a branch on it. And he says, he it is that bears much fruit. 
If you're the branch and I'm the vine, you're connected to me, you're going to bear much fruit. You're going to be successful in this life, not on the world standards, but for God's glory and your good. And apart from me, you can do no thing. You can do nothing. And that makes me mad because I wish someone told me that sooner because I want to produce things. I want to win. I want to storm the gates of hell. And I want to see souls saved every week. We should have baptisms. Every week you should be bringing a friend in going, yeah, I met him on the street. Yeah, they were down and out. I met him there in the cubicle or there on the water cooler. Man, I called a friend up or I walked across the street and I told him about Jesus. Like the church is supposed to be on the offense. We should be figuring out how to build more churches, not be like, oh, wow, we're declining. But the church lost mavericks somewhere along the way. And we tried to be respectable. We tried, oh, let's just keep our, no, let's tell people about God's love. Let's have a vision to be like Jesus. Let's be intentional about it and let's have a method. My daughter spoke to me yesterday. She said, dad, you got to put this in the sermon. It's like, all right. She said, I figured it out. You have to read the Bible to want to read the Bible. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life. We don't know how bad we are until we look in the mirror, and that's what Scripture does. When we read the Bible, we see how bad we are, how good God is, how recklessly in love He is with sinners, and how far He runs to grab us and bring us back to Him. And we read a story like this, we're like, wow, God, you want everyone, even me. He's like, yes, come on, let's go. We got people to go preach the gospel to. We have people to serve. It's not about you. Humble yourself and come serve like Jesus served you. Use your talents. We have a bunch of talent in this room. What are we doing to build God's kingdom? And that's where we push, because we have a vision of our kingdom we try and build, instead of the vision of following Jesus and being intentional about following Jesus and then coming up with a method. Is, are you reading the Bible in the morning? Or is it at night? Or, or maybe it's, it's you, you're, you just need to put on headphones and listen to a chapter or listen to a little five-minute Devo. As we talked about last week, reading scripture at least four times a week is the beginning to have it to start to take effect and root in our lives. Four times a week. What's the method? To present our bodies, our minds, and our hearts as members of God, tools to use for his glory in building his kingdom. So as we end every sermon focusing on Jesus and the work he's done in our lives, if you want to take communion with us as a believer, believing this is a representation of Jesus, that his work on the cross, that his battle he fought for you to forgive you of sin, to literally exchange your guilty standing before God because you're a sinner. You've thought, acted, or done things against God, said things against God. You're guilty, but Jesus says, I love you. I'm going to forgive you. I fought the battle. I've won, I've risen from the dead, and I want to give you a new life. We're going to give you a minute to think about maybe that soul-forming faith, being focused on God. What areas of your life? Maybe you need to write Galatians 5 down and, and read the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Maybe the Spirit will bring to mind, hey, I want you to be more loving. You need to be more self-controlled. You're just kind of a, a maverick to a T, doing your own thing, until it hurts you and hurts others around you. And you gotta, you gotta rein it in a little bit. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life right now and as you pray and I'll come up and, and close this in a minute.